Heavenly Father, I do thank you so much for your love and grace and um, for your wisdom and for your control, Lord, over this world and our lives and that we can trust you with all that happens. Thank you that nothing ever takes you by surprise and um, you're never panicked, you're never fretting, never full of anxiety and worry. Lord, you're at peace. You are peace itself. And so, God, I just pray that as we look at your word, that again our hearts would be ministered to and um, that you would be accomplishing in us all that you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to be in chapter 4 of Acts. Um, Michael asked me last week what to put down as far as what we covered, and I said 1 to 32 of Acts 4, but actually we're going to pick it up in verse 23, and I'm going to um, read through verse 35. So we might as well keep to tradition if you're... Those of you that are here this morning, you can stand while I read. Verse 23, And when they had released, had been released, they went to their own and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they are gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness." And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. All right, you may be seated. A couple weeks ago, Pastor and I were down in Costa Rica, and it is a beautiful country. And we, um, while, over the weekend that we were there, we aren't normally there over an entire weekend, but we went and stayed at a um, hotel that has about 10 acres of gardens, um, at least 10 acres of gardens behind the property there. Absolutely beautiful, paths that wander through it. Every kind of tree and everything you can imagine. Um, and all the, all the trees and plants are labeled so you can see what the, what the Spanish name is and what the Latin name is, which means nothing to me because I don't know Latin and I can't read Spanish very well. So, but anyway, we came to one tree and it was the most interesting tree in the whole place to me and it didn't have a label. Um, I don't know what it's called. I got on the internet this morning to see if I could find out what that tree was called. Probably 70, 80 feet tall. 
and the tree from the ground all the way out to the furthest tips of the branches was covered in the biggest spikes you ever saw. Um, it, it, they were huge. and It was almost spike on top of spike. It would be impossible to climb that tree. And I looked at that tree and I thought, if the devil were to ever make a tree, that would be the tree it would make. I mean, it, 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 from a distance, it looked like a beautiful tree. But you get up next to it and you go, that is the strangest, most, most forbidding tree I've ever seen. And I got on the internet, and the closest thing I could find to it is called a sandbox tree. But that doesn't even have the number of spikes on it, at least the pictures on the internet of what we saw. And the sandbox tree is also known as monkey don't climb. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's, that's, nothing could climb that tree. A monkey couldn't climb that tree. A squirrel couldn't climb that tree. Now, why do I say that? We're living, I, I can't tell you how many times in the last week probably I've heard people say that, we have, that they have in their whole life never experienced a time like this that we're going through with this virus and how the world is responding to it. And I, you know, I've certainly not. But I talked to a guy this week who's older than me, and he's going, my entire life, I've never seen anything like this. He said he talked to a guy older than him in his 90s. He says, I've lived my whole life. I've never seen anything like this, kind of like that tree. Now, I, like I said, I could look at that tree and go, Satan made that tree. But he didn't. God made all the trees. Now, I don't know why God didn't make that the tree in the middle of the garden that Adam and Eve couldn't. <laughs> think, we'd still be living in a garden if that had been the tree that God had put in the middle of the garden. But God makes all the trees. And there is nothing that happens in this world that God is not in control of. And in this passage here, this is the beginning of when, in the book of Acts, the new church is persecuted. And as we, we saw last week, um, Peter and, and John are hauled into the Sanhedrin council because they've done nothing more than healed a man who has been born lame. But what the problem that the Sadducees have is, number one, Peter and John are teaching the people, and they thought they were the only ones that had the right to do that. And second, because they were preaching in the name of Jesus. And they did not want the name of Jesus even mentioned. And then they intimidate them, threaten them, and send them out. Now, in the next chapter, this is, that's the beginning of the opposition and the persecution. In the next chapter, they're going to be arrested again, and they're going to be flogged. And so it just gets more intense. And finally, we get to the place where the church is just being scattered out of Jerusalem. They can't even stay there anymore. And they're, and they're going all over the world, continuing to preach that Jesus lives. So this is a unique time for the church. These new Christians have never been through anything like this. And so brand new, they're just baby Christians, and here comes the persecution, and how do you get equipped for that? And we're going to see they don't panic, and really nothing changes with this church, which is pretty amazing. So we left off last time in verse 23, where it says, And when they had been released, Peter and John, they went to their own. And I made the point that, that we all instinctively do that. We go to our own. And especially in times of crisis, we can really begin to see 
who we attach ourselves to, who we identify with, um, because those are the ones we go to. Who do you pick up the phone and call when the wheels are falling off your life? Who do you gravitate to? Who do you go to for peace, for comfort, for wisdom? Those are the people that you identify with. And you know, you think it wouldn't have to be stressed talking to Christians, but it, it does need to be. And that is just the question, who are your people? I remember the old cowboys, the Westerns, you know, sometimes there'd be an Indian in the, who was helping them, you know, maybe a, an Apache scout or something working for the, for the cavalry. And sometime in the movie toward the end, the Indian might say something like, I go to my people now. And you go, well, you know what exactly what he meant. He may be living among the white people, serving the white people, friends with the white people, but they're not his people. And so he goes, I go to my people now. Kind of reminds me of that story about when the Lone Ranger was surrounded by Indians. And he turned to, Toronto, to Tonto and said, Tonto, we're surrounded. And Tonto looked at him and said, what you mean we, Kimosabi? <laughs> I'm sure you're laughing at home with that joke. <laughs> but unfortunately, it is a question that needs to be asked of Christians. Who are your people? And by the way that some Christians live their lives, you could not tell that their people is the body of Christ. And that's a shame. And I, I am not one who thinks that you can tell whether people are saved or not by how they live their lives, because I believe that you can live a carnal life as a Christian. I believe it's possible not to abide in Christ and there be no evidence outwardly, externally, that you belong to Jesus, because you can live a life of apostasy, a life of carnality, so I'm, I'm, I am not going to judge somebody else's salvation about who they hang out with, who they associate with. Only God knows the heart. But it should never have to be a question to be asked of a Christian. Who are your people? Who do you identify with? For a Christian, Jesus and the people who belong to Jesus. Nobody means more. Every Christian should be able to say, no one means more to me than Jesus Christ and his people. His people, in some cases, means that's more important than family, blood. Because there is no stronger identity for a Christian than Christ and Christ's people. Who are your people? And so they go to their own, and they reported to them all that the priests and the elders had said to them. And look at the response of the church in verse 24. When they heard this, they said, Oh, my, what are we going to do now? And they panicked. No. When they heard this, that the powers to be in Israel... The same powers that crucified Jesus are now saying, we're going to come after you if you continue to preach in his name. 
And when they heard that, that powerful threat by the powers of the day, they said, verse 24, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, God, you're in charge, not men. You're the one with all the power. Oh, Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Not these guys. They haven't made anything but a mess. You're the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, I find that encouraging and convicting how they immediately responded by seeing God who is high and lifted up. They weren't intimidated by these threats. They weren't shaken by them. Their attention immediately goes to God and how big he is. There's an article put out this week by the Wall Street Journal, and it quotes um, a guy named Butterfield who wrote a book called Christianity and History. Um, 1949, he wrote his book. And these are some of the things that this article makes reference to. It says, in the late 1940s, Gallup surveys showed that more than three-quarters of Americans were members of a house of worship. That's pretty impressive. 1949, 75% of the population in the United States attended a place of worship. Today, it's about 50%. I'm surprised it's that high. And it was in 1954 that Congress added the words under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. In that period of time, has sometimes been called the third great awakening in the United States. But, and now, since that time, as this author says, life has been deceptively easy. Our ancestors' lives, by contrast, were guaranteed to be short and painful. The lucky ones survived birth. The luckier ones made it past childhood. Only in the past 200 years has humanity truly taken off. During this time, in the last 50 years or so, the author says, we have reduced nature to the shackled form of a conquered master. God became irrelevant until now. Men may live to a great age in days of comparative quietness and peaceful progress without ever having to come to grips with the universe, without ever vividly realizing the problems and the paradoxes with which human history so often confronts us, Butterfield wrote. We of the, of the 20th century have been particularly spoiled we have become oblivious to the transcendent, that there is a God who made this world and exists outside of it and is in control of it. But the pandemic that we're currently experiencing has humbled the country and opened millions of eyes to this risky universe once more. Sheer grimness of suffering brings men sometimes into a profounder understanding of human destiny. Sometimes it is only by a cataclysm 
that man can make his escape from the net which he has taken so much trouble to weave around himself. For societies founded on the biblical tradition, cataclysms need not mark the end. They are a call for repentance and revival. We understand as Christians, great struggle can produce great clarity. While Americans, shaken by the reality of a risky universe, rediscover the God who proclaimed himself sovereign over every catastrophe. I was glad to see that in a secular publication this week. And that's what this early church is manifesting. It is a troubling time. Threat of persecution. And they knew that would not stop with the apostles. In fact, the apostles would be the last ones to get persecuted. It would be the people that didn't have all the popularity of the apostles that would be the first ones to be persecuted. And yet when the threats come by the most powerful people in their country, they said God is the maker of heaven and earth and the seas and all that dwell in them. In the times that we live in, many people have observed how up until now, and I hope things are changing now, we've become pretty cavalier, pretty familiar with God. We call him father, as we should. We call him friend, as Jesus said, he now calls us his friends. Nothing wrong with that. But I'm afraid that too many times we have forgotten the fear of God. That He is the Creator God. He is sovereign. He is holy. He is powerful. He is the maker of heaven and earth and the seas and all that are in them. I believe these people didn't panic because they had a big God. And they knew their God was in absolute control over everything happening in this world. Then they speak of God's word through men, verse 25, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said. And so God speaks through men. That is the nature of the Bible, the nature of inspiration is God is speaking through men. So you said through David, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? And the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers of the earth gathered together against the Lord and against the Christ. There's a Marxist ideology that says, never let a good catastrophe go to, go to waste. And what they mean by that is that when a catastrophe hits, seizes as an opportunity to take more control over people's lives, for the government to take more and more control. And I believe that we've seen that. Um, with each time we've been through a major catastrophe in this country, the Great Depression, World War II, 9-11, and now the, the current pandemic. 
we're seeing our government take more and more control. That is a Marxist ideology. But what we can take heart in is that God has ultimate control. And there is nothing that men are doing that is going to thwart the purposes of God. We still pray. We pray for liberty. We pray for freedom, particularly the freedom to be able to express our faith and to live out our faith. For the, even the freedom to be able to gather together in the name of Jesus. Those are good things to pray for and to seek after. But even when those things are taken away from us, by the evil intentions of men, God is still in control. So the world works its evil in futility because God is going to accomplish His purposes. Verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you, um, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Truly, gathered together against your people were Herod and Pilate, the rulers, all of them were against Jesus, and they still are. Never going to change. The rulers of this world are going to consistently be against Jesus. But everything that they were doing against Jesus, your anointed, was exactly what you'd planned on happening. Verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Nothing happens outside of God's control. Nothing. Viruses, epidemics, pandemics, nothing happens outside of God's control. Now, this is not a verse that says that men do not have free will. Scripture constantly affirms the free will of men. It's simply emphasizing the sovereign control of God, and there's not a contradiction. If you look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul makes this interesting statement about what Luke has just said here in Acts. There's, um, I don't know that Paul had, the, had Luke in mind, but it fits. 1 Corinthians 2.8, The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. So that speaks of free will. If Herod and Pilate had understood what they were doing, they would not have done it, even though Luke says it was predestined to take place. No contradiction. One school of thought says that when God chooses to do what he's going to do, he does so with irrespective of what he knows will take place. So God knows because he's omniscient, but he does not choose to do what he does based on his knowledge. And I think of that and I go, that has got to be one of the most ridiculous statements I've ever heard. How can God, who knows, not act in accordance with what he knows? Because then he no longer knows. I mean, I just don't get it. I'm a pretty simple person. But if God knows what's going to happen, then what he chooses to do has to be in accordance with what he knows. Because he can't not know. He knows. On the other hand, it's not true 
that God makes a choice based upon what people are going to do. Because God's choices are not dependent upon our choices. And so one side is a strict Calvinist view and the other side is a strict Arminian view. But the truth is in the middle where God says that he chooses in accordance with what he knows is going to take place. So his choice is not based on what he knows will take place. His choice is not irrespective of what he knows is going to take place, but his choice is in accordance with what he knows. Is going to, in other words, it's concordant. It's simultaneous. And so God's choice, God's foreknowledge, is not in any way based on, dependent upon, or irrespective of what he knows will happen. It all is simultaneous in the heart and mind of God. And there is nothing in Scripture that would lead us to the conclusion, I believe, that even though God knows what's going to happen and therefore it will happen, that man does not have freedom in that. We just saw what Paul wrote and said, if those two guys, Herod and Pilate, had known what they were about to do, they would not have done it. That's freedom. But this passage says it happened the way it happened because God predestined it. That's sovereignty. Sovereignty, freedom, it shouldn't get us all twisted up in a knot. They're both true simultaneously at the same time. So I don't have to worry and say, well, my choices are going to ruin the earth or, or change the destiny of the earth. Neither do I become passive and complacent, but live in that truth of God wants me to be morally responsible before him. The choices I make matter. They are true choices, but God is in control. He knows what we're going to do. He knows what the world is doing, and he works all things together for good. So we can take comfort in that. And these people are focusing on the power of God at a critical cataclysmic time, and it brings peace and comfort to their hearts to know God is in control. And even when Jesus, that is the greatest catastrophe in the, in the minds of these disciples that it could have ever happened, Jesus was killed, crucified. And now they're able to say, and it happened exactly the way God knew it was going to happen. And he is still in control. And if that was true for that, the greatest catastrophe ever to happen, and it was exactly what he planned on happening, and from it he brings resurrection and life to the dead then he's in control of persecution. And he's in control of viruses that take place. God knows what's happening. And he is in absolute control. And there's no need for us to panic. Verse 29, And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Like you need to ask God to do that. <laughs> take note of their threats, God. I love it. I mean, this, is, this reminds me of the different times in, in the Old Testament where a king was in trouble, faced with a million-man army, or you know, like Asa was, or, or faced with, a, with um, the Assyrians coming against them, like I think Jehoshaphat was, and, 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 and they just spread their letters out before God. They cried out to God, and they said, God, look what they're saying. Take note of what they're saying, and come and help the powerless for your namesake. And it was all about God's glory. 
And now there's this, the same thing, the early church, same sentiment as those men of God in the Old Testament. Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants would escape. Show us a cave to go to where we can hide until it's all over. And Lord, let us show up at HEB at the right time when there's toilet paper on the shelf so that we can just live our lives of peace. It's not what he's saying. Grant that your bondservants may speak the word with confidence. I find this amazing that they're not even praying, Lord, keep us from the persecution that they're threatening. Protect us from the persecution. They're saying, God, give us boldness to speak your word with confidence. While at the same time you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Once again, I, I, we get so caught up in the signs and wonders and we forget what the purpose was to heal. And the purpose of that, to help. And the purpose of that, that God would be glorified as a loving, caring, compassionate God. The focus was not on the signs and wonders, but this early church not only wanted boldness to speak, to evangelize, but they also understood that their God is a good God. And when the thoughts and intentions of men are evil, God's thoughts and intentions are merciful. And they wanted to be used by God practically to help people out. And, if, and so healing, signs and wonders, but it was all for the sake of helping people and seeing them ministered to. And when they had finished praying, the whole place where they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak the word of God as they had requested with boldness. There's nothing here that we should think that every time we pray, if we've really prayed, if we've really laid hold of the throne of God, that the room is going to shake. I don't know that this was ever repeated. It's the only time it happened in the book of Acts, never repeated after that. It was early on. The Lord wanted to just show these people that he had heard and that they, and that they were being empowered by him. The filling of the Holy Spirit... That is a continual thing. Ephesians 5 speaks of that. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an ongoing, continual experience for the Christian. And so should speaking the Word of God with boldness. So one of the most bold people that I often am around in sharing about Christ are the elderly. My mother got that way. I don't consider her elderly, um, when she passed away at 70. But um, she knew that her time was short. And she became increasingly bold. Um, she always, up to that time, demonstrated her faith through her actions. Not so much through her words. I think it was said at her funeral that um, no one could think of anybody who came to faith in Christ because of her words. But there were people who did come to faith in Christ and who were encouraged in their faith because of her actions, many people. 
But at the end, especially the last six months or so, my mom got very bold in talking to her grandchildren and her friends about the need to place their faith in Christ. And I've seen that with many older people, that they are bold because what do you have to lose? And life, they know, is now almost over. I told Patsy's mom when we were up in Pennsylvania for her 90th birthday, um, one of the great things about being so old is that um, she didn't have any peer pressure. <laughs> because they're all dead. <laughs> all the peers. Uh, she didn't really laugh a whole lot. But um, old people typically can be more bold about sharing their faith. But so can we. And you think at this time, to live to be 70, 80, 90 was extraordinary. At this time, in the first century, life expectancy was more like 40, maybe 50. People didn't live long. They're very acquainted with death, very acquainted with disease and plagues. And it, death happened all the time. I mean, in fact, even the next chapter, when Ananias and Sapphira get killed, they bury the guy and return in three hours. I mean, we don't do that. <laughs> but people died so frequently, they didn't have these long periods of mourning and funeral planning and, and then buried, you know, three, four days later. The guy died and they take him, do the entire burial process, and they're back in three hours in time to bury his wife when she dies. And that part of that was because they lived in a hot climate. I get it. But part of it was just because they were so accustomed to death. It happened all the time. And they were not insulated from it. They had that in their favor when it comes to being bold. We've lived, I've lived, such a comfortable life where the greatest difficulty I could face would be losing somebody's friendship because I mentioned Jesus to them. These guys would be going, are you kidding me? Life can be so much harder than that. And that's a hard thing. But we have had it, I've had it, so easy throughout life. And so these guys are a little bit, you know, ahead of us in being able to, to understand that, yes, I still need boldness. Yes, I can still be intimidated. But on the other hand, I know life is short. And there's no guarantee of living a long, easy life, as we've been doing for the last 75 years in this country since the end of World War II. So they prayed for boldness, and God answered it majorly. Verse 32, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Now hold your finger here and go back to chapter 2 in verse 42. And so we see nothing's changed. Even though their circumstances have changed, now they're being threatened, persecution is on the horizon, 
Nothing has changed in how they're living their lives. Verse 42 of chapter 2. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many signs and wonders were taking place to the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they began selling their property and the possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And they were continuing together with one mind. So the same thing. Even though circumstances have changed, same heart, same way that they're living, same priorities, same generosity, same unity, everything's the same. Their circumstances have not changed the way they live their faith. Do you know, I haven't seen this, but Audrey is telling me that when she went into HEB this week, not only do they have police officers at the front of the store, they have a police officer standing in the toilet paper aisle because people are fighting over toilet paper. And they have to have a police officer there to keep people from beating each other up. And I'd just like to just do a survey. Just stand there with a clipboard and a survey. Excuse me, could you tell me, what church do you go to? Can you tell me, do you profess to be a Christian? Could you know some of those people that are flipping out over toilet paper are Christians. Chances are, some of them are. What a shame that we get so out of character because circumstances have changed. It should, and I, again, I'm speaking to myself here because I flip out. I get anxious. I've, I, I've been an anxious person my whole life. My mother used to say I would make a mountain out of a molehill worrying about all the stuff that I worried about. I got it from her. And, and, but there is no, when we're living in Christ and he is our solid rock, there is no good reason why any temporal circumstance should, should elicit from us a response different than how we've been living before that circumstance came into our life. So they're one heart and one soul. Unity. They have now a completely different perspective regarding possessions. Nothing like they had been thinking before. A new perspective on wealth, on possessions. A new priority, a new commitment, a new responsibility, a new love, a new freedom. All, and you see, because this is what, what grabs us more than anything else is often just our possessions, our safety, our security. And now when it's being threatened, they are generous, not hoarding. There were no hoarders in the early church. That's amazing. And when my heart goes toward, I need to have more stuff in order to protect myself and guns in order to make sure nobody takes it, something's not right. These were generous people by the Spirit of God. They did not claim anything as belonging to themselves, but all things were common property. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was on them all. And what did that grace look like? Verse 34, For there was not a needy person among them, for all 
who were owners of land or houses, would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. This is never repeated. It's not mandated. There is no command. There is no, no exhortation in Scripture that this is how we're supposed to be doing it today. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he had two entire chapters devoted to money, chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. He never said a word about selling your property and bringing the proceeds to the elders of the church so that they could distribute it. Nothing of the kind. So this was a unique time, and God's Spirit was moving in this way, and we should not try to duplicate today what God was doing then. That's always bad advice. But God has always been and still is a generous God. How that generosity manifests itself is going to be different from time to time and people to, be, and people, to people. But nothing has changed with the generosity of God and the lack of possessiveness that the people of God should have in terms of their possessions possessing them. Our possessions should not be possessing us. There ought to be the freedom to be able to give it away with a joyful heart, as these people were doing. It was not commanded. There's no organization here to make this happen. This was not Christian communism. Everybody's People still had different amounts of stuff. The point is, is that those with stuff are making sure that anybody that had a need had their needs met. And they did it on their own initiative as, as, just as the, as the goodness of God was flowing from their hearts and lives. So a new priority, a new perspective, a new commitment, responsibility, a new love, a new freedom. They're not being ruled by fear. They're not being ruled by the love of money and possessions. They're not hoarding their stuff. And also a new power and a new enabling for sharing Christ boldly. Appreciated just some quotes by Warren Wiersbe on how they prayed. They did not pray to, leave, to have their circumstances changed or their enemies put out of office. Wiersbe quotes another author who said, Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your task. Wearsby also says they did not ask for protection. They asked for power. They did not ask for fire from heaven to destroy their enemies, but for, but for power from heaven to preach the word and to heal the sick. Their great desire was for boldness in the face of opportunity. I appreciate that. Unique times, we're not the first people to go through unique times. First in the lifetimes for anybody probably alive today, except there are a couple I've heard that are now over 100 years old who lived through um, some great plague that happened at the beginning of the 20th century. But even then, the world did not respond to that plague the way they're responding to this one. Unique in so many ways. But we are not the first people to, go to live through unique times. We have a God 
who dwells on high, maker of heaven and earth and the seas and all that dwells in them. He made the birds and he cares for them. How much more, Jesus says, will he not care for you and for me? I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you that you are still on your throne and that you are absolutely sovereign. And we know, God, there are some who are making, taking this as an opportunity to, to force um, themselves into our lives and to strip people away from the freedoms they've had. You know these things, God, and you're still in control. We know, God, that there are some who are living in panic and in great fear. Many, Lord, who are losing their jobs. We understand this is a big thing, God. Lord Jesus, we know that for this too, that you are in control. And I pray, God, that as your people, our hearts would be at rest. I pray, God, that we would, would live seeking not just to have our circumstances changed to our advantage, but that we would make the most of preaching Jesus, speaking openly concerning him with every opportunity. I pray that we would be bold, as the early church was, filled with confidence and boldness in making Christ known. And Lord, as we may have need or may have much, that we, Lord, would be ruled again by your heart of generosity, that we would give and supply for others as we've been supplied for. But most of all, God, that we just live at peace and in the freedom that can only be acquired through your Spirit and his ministry to us. And I thank you, God, that you are more than just father and friend though you are these, and we thank you for that. But you are also the sovereign, powerful, omnipotent God. In Jesus' name, amen.